Hi, everyone. I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. Well, we are very excited to have Ping Ho on the show with us today. She has a really interesting background. I know. I mean, from the sounds of this, she's done a lot in her life. She's yeah. uh, born and raised in Singapore. She got an MBA from Columbia, but she went to undergrad at Brown. So she's lived all over. And uh, after living in New York, she apparently she moved over to Detroit and she opened up a bunch of really interesting businesses. Yeah. Yeah. Former music industry exec too, which I want to talk to her about. I'm like, I love that it's all like this experience, the experience of the customer, the experience of, you know, the music industry, the restaurant industry. I feel like they're all, you know, there's similarities there. So I, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah. Speaking of similarities, she's doing something similar to what I have experienced yes. in, which she runs like a hybrid business. Um, so I really want to talk with her about that because I feel like that's a huge sector sector for the hospitality industry that I think is poised to grow big time totally. in the next few years if we've learned anything over COVID. So very interested to speak with her today. I feel like we're going to have a lot to talk about. Yeah. We're going to talk to her about how she's applying her previous business experience to hospitality, what she's learned about running the hybrid the hybrid restaurant concept. And she's also doing some really interesting things and blowing up marrow and doing some uh, building new restaurant space with with a butcher shop inside, a bar in there. There goes my water glass all over my things. Um. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's okay, everyone. <laughs> We're not going to edit this out. <laughs> oh, man. You know, there's always one glitch this is the on real, here. This is the realness of this podcast. So, you know, even with a drenched keyboard, yeah. we're willing to have these conversations say, with these, these incredible... As you see me draining my keyboard on the, on the screen. Okay. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Let's welcome Ping to the show. Well, we are really excited to have Ping Ho on the show with us today. Ping, thank you so much for joining us to talk about all of your background, your journey through the food service industry. We're really excited to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Yes, Ping, I'm really, really excited to speak with you as well. We have a lot in common, uh, I've found, uh, business-wise and otherwise, but we always start to show off trying to get a better feel for everyone's background. Yours one, we've had a lot of people on this show whose backgrounds included like forays into law or potential medical careers, but you're the first person we've ever spoken to who comes from a very different kind of background. Um, I was just wondering if you wanted to talk about how you started off in the music industry and then ended up pivoting up, pivoting over to hospitality and service because it's quite a move. Yeah. Well, so I, well, I grew up in Singapore. And so that was, you know, first of all, being from Singapore, go, coming to the U.S. was, uh, you know, quite a change for me in my teenage years. And I always wanted to live in New York City. So after graduation, I thought, you know, yes, I'm moving to New York. Um, had a little me bit too. of a foreign. I did the same thing. <laughs> Right. It's great. And it's a great city. I never thought I'd leave, actually. Right. Um, so lived there, was a journalist for as my first job. And then 9-11 happened. And then um, I actually moved to Shanghai for, for four years. And that was actually my, you know, the, the time when I then got into the business side of things. Um, had my first exposure to hospitality because I worked with a bunch of guys who we opened a bar and a restaurant. Um, and then... Uh, but more on the investment management side of things. Um, but then, yeah. And this I, was in Shanghai? This was in Shanghai in the early yeah. days when China was just opening up. So very exciting times. Saw a lot, experienced a lot. Um, but 
you know, had the good fortune to run into um, the new owners of Warner Music at the time, and they were just building a digital uh, business development team. And because I had some business development um, digital experience in Shanghai by then, um, I uh, was hired and then moved back to New York and spent 10 years in the music business. So how did I get from uh, the music business to Detroit, owning restaurants and wine <laughs> bar and starting a meat business? Well, it was, I think the impetus was really, I realized I did not want to age into a corporate job and a corporate position. Um, I, I was in my late 30s and felt it was probably time to make a move and had always been, you know, growing up in Singapore, had always been interested in in food, right? Food is very much part of our culture, um, hmm. great food in, in Singapore. Um, and in my 10 years working at in the music business, I had the opportunity to travel a lot, particularly to Europe, um, spent time in, uh, in France and Spain, and really got to um, appreciate wine as, and, and learn more about it and, and realize I really like the taste of wine and you know, everything that wine embodies. So decided that the next move could definitely be something in, um, you know, firstly in, in the wine business. Um, and my partner at the time grew up in Michigan. So we would fly in and we would, we, we, you know, to Detroit. Um, mm-hmm. And started noticing that there was something really interesting happening in Detroit. It was, you know, people were talking about uh, a comeback, a revitalization. And Detroit has great great history you know it's a it used to be one of the biggest cities in the u.s as i think we you know we all know where the auto industry came about and yeah till this day it has some amazing architecture um things you really see only in new york city and some other big cities um so the great bones of 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 a city lots of you know history motown um but with a lot of different challenges over the decades the past few decades so in any case, you know, seeing that um, in 2014, 2015, start noticing that there was something really interesting happening in Detroit. So long story short, took the big leap and decided that our big, you know, career life change would be to sell everything in New York and quit, you know, quit our jobs and yeah, move to, move to Detroit. And um, op- that's a was- culture shock. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not knowing anyone um in Michigan yeah. right at the time was was a big step. Um but yeah, opened <laughs> my first business which was called uh which is, you know, still in existence today. It's called The Royce. It's a wine shop and bar in downtown Detroit. So that's how I kind of came into the retail uh industry food and beverage. Um and in 2018, I uh well, actually 2017, I had this idea of a business plan. Um, for a business plan in the food space, which was um, a butcher shop restaurant hybrid and wrote the business plan and started pitching it, you know, and talking to different people and found the right chef, found the right butcher. And we opened at the end of 2018. So that was that, you know, the transition from the wine business then into the restaurant space um, was with Marrow, my, my first restaurant. Yeah. Yeah. This is incredible. So, I mean, I'm I'm just blown away that the trajectory there was. I, I've very, very very there are very few people I know who have made the move to a new city and a new line of work in one fell swoop like that. So that's saying a lot. Um, but it's also interesting because 
you were pressing into something that's like like something that's very interesting to me it, because I own a hybrid beer store and bar in New York City, which has been open for just over 10 years now. So I'm really curious because um, it's it's something that obviously one component or the other involves a lot of work and a lot of know-how, but it also brings a lot, a lot of strengths because then you can offer more to people. I'm really curious about like why you thought it was a good idea to do the hybrid concept because to a lot of Americans, it's like you either go to a restaurant or a bar or you go to a store and that, that hybrid thing doesn't really exist. Did you have to kind of like sell that idea to people or was it something that kind of fell into place? It fell into place to some degree. I mean, I was very excited when we got to Michigan and realized that the hybrid model is legal. I think in, I don't know about now, maybe COVID has changed things, but back then in New York City, wine shops had to be wine shops and you, you, yeah, no, you could yeah. not be beer, right? beer is the only one you can do. Wine, you're right, wine has to be separate. Got it. Yeah. So when when we when we got to De- Detroit, um, I came across a few different. Um, well, I, you know, understood the licensing model and realized that we could do this hybrid uh, retail bar uh, model, and it's been great. And you know, the space that in the Royce we have really high ceilings, so we built these. Um, you know, what looks like a library of wines. We have many SKUs and many bottles because we have the space to store them. And um, I think the retail bar model works very well for things, for, for, you know, items, products like beer and wine, because people want to shop and then they can also sample and sit down. And, you know, the margins at retail versus a bar are quite different, right? As you know. Right. And that's huge. Bar, yes, that's the biggest yeah, part. The bar definitely helps um, drive the margins in the business. Retail is a very nice, uh, like, amenity to offer. And um, we can also um, offer this model where someone can come in and if they look at our wine list, they go, okay, but I want to try something else. Then they go to the shelves, they pick up a bottle and all they have to do is to drink it on premise is to pay a corkage fee of $15. So it's still cheaper than the markup at a restaurant. So we see a lot of our customers trying different wines or they know they're in a mood for something higher end. For example, that's not on our BTG list. And yeah, mm-hmm. they, 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 they choose to, yeah, choose something off the retail floor. So it's, it's a really nice model. And I, you know, and I, I really enjoy yeah, running, running that business. Um, I also chose to do the hybrid model at Marrow, right? With the butcher shop well, restaurant. I was going to say <laughs> for, for wine, it makes a lot of sense because it's a product that a lot, especially in the U.S., I find people really, really want to try something before they buy it or they want to feel more right. confident yes. because they're not confident in their own knowledge. Um, this is very different in Europe, but like it, where we are in North America, it's, it's a different experience for mm-hmm. food. It's totally different. Having the, the concept of like a store that you can also stay in and eat at is something that's usually relegated to like maybe sandwich shops or a few things that's like what that. I was so thinking. I'm yeah, really, delis really or curious. Bodega. Yeah. Delis, yeah. bodegas and maybe the off chance mm-hmm. that like there's, you know, like a, a special concept restaurant, but I'm really curious, like a breakfast cafe or something like that. But I'm really curious as to how that sort of approach works into the restaurant world. Well, I think we're pretty unique. And I, in, in the U.S., there are a few other spots that may be comparable where they do have a butcher shop. Some of them has, have shut down in the, in the last few years that we know of um, because it's always hard to maintain a small you know, butcher shop. The margins are tight, right? And especially yes. when we do whole animal butchery. But the way Marrow was designed and it was you know, by, by design is you enter and exit through the butcher shop. So when you walk in, there's a bar. But you front and center, people can see into 
two big meat cases and uh, a dry aging case with our dry aged beef on, on the side, right? So it's very much, I mean, I call it meat porn, right? You, you get people yeah. who, who come in and they're just looking at the meat at night while they're waiting for their table or they're having a drink. And, um, but it's beautifully designed, right? We're, our aesthetic is very clean. It's very, um, you know, well displayed meat. It all looks fresh. So in, and yeah, I mean, it, to us, it also, to me, it's also part of our mission. Know where your food comes from. If you choose to eat meat, yeah. eat good meat and also know where it comes from, right? So we're mm-hmm. of the opposite notion that, you know, don't know where the sausage, don't, we don't know, want to know how the sausage is made. We, in fact, want to show you how the sausage is made and better still, you can learn literally. how to Literally, we know how the sausage is made. <laughs> and take classes on sausage making or butchery classes, right? Which is something we offer at Marrow. Um, but yeah, cool. it's, it's so the only thing we don't offer, which was initially part of my plan, but I quickly realized by talking and learning from the chefs is that the model where imagine you go to the counter, you pick a piece of meat and you have it cooked and delivered to your table. That's very different, oh. difficult because of the way you know, the line is set up, right? So a sirloin cooks very differently from a skirt steak and the time right. required. So my initial plan to ha- offer that as a feature of, of the butcher shop restaurant hybrid, that was very quickly, uh, <laughs> you know, squashed by my chef. Like, nope, that's not going to happen. That's a great idea. Wow. I mean, I'm already thinking about that now, but you're right. I can imagine that being tough on the kitchen. That's that's a lot to ask. <laughs> I, also, I love what an experience this is though. Like it's not just the retail shop. It's also, you're doing cooking classes. You're like, yeah. you've really got this, like the guest experience at the forefront. And mm-hmm. I, and I wonder, A, I've got two, I mean, I've got kind of two questions there. I wonder how much your, your experience in the music business informs some of these decisions, because I feel like being in that industry, it's all about the experience, right? Like I think yeah. about even concerts, you go to a concert and then you've got like all the retail there as well for everybody to buy. And you've got this, you're selling the CDs. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much. Maybe I'm thinking too far, but did that have any influence over some of these decisions that you made? I think that's a great analogy and maybe unconsciously it definitely drove it. Right. But it's, it's important yeah. to create experiences. And that's one, one of our, you know, goals at Marrow. We, we, we do explicitly say we are in, we're about creating experiences um, mm-hmm. from, uh, you know, knowing where your food comes from, being able to meet your butcher, being able to take classes. Um, we participate in, you know, events where people can, um, yeah, like eat out in the field with farmers. And so outstanding oh. in the field is one, um, annual event that uh, my chef, Sarah Welsh, has always been the Detroit chef for mm-hmm. that particular series. So it, it is all about um, experiences. And it's important also because I think food has become such an, you know, it, it's, it's front and center in who we are in, in our culture. And I think coming, growing up in Asia, growing up in Singapore in particular, I, like, I, yeah, I, I, value how much it's part of who I am. And when I think about all the memories of what, you know, of positive memories, a lot of it revolves around food. Um, yeah. You know, the, the trips I took with my grandmother to go shopping when I was a kid um, at the wet market. And yeah, the, the food my dad, who's a good chef, would, you know, good cook, home cook, 
would prepare yeah. after work or usually on the weekends. So all those, you know, positive memories re revolve around food and the experiences we had, right, with, with mm -hmm. that. So. I'm wondering if you get more of those, do you get more of these kinds of concepts in Shanghai or do you see them more overseas than you do here? In, in Asia? Well, I think yeah. the, Singapore, yeah. oh, Singapore, Singapore, sorry. Yeah. sorry, sorry. Well, the, you know, I mentioned wet markets, right? It's, it's a big part of my childhood memory where my grandmother yeah. would basically go to uh, these, you know, semi-outdoor markets where, where there are different vendors, right? The, the meat seller, the fish seller, the vegetable seller. She knew who she would shop with. Like she, even though there are multiple um, say, you know, fishmongers or meat sellers, she knew she had her favorites. They knew what she liked. She knew that what they had was fresh, right? So that kind of more intimate relationship with who provides your food is definitely, mm -hmm. I think, more, uh, it happens more in Asia, at least when I was growing up, right? Where people would, you know, my grandmother would shop or would put, would cook the meal of the day based on what was fresh at the market. I think right. here in industrialized uh, cities and, you know, societies, we shop at grocery stores. I mean, now it's even worse, right? We can just click through, get Instacart or Amazon or Whole Foods to deliver right to our doorstep. So that relationship <laughs> with actually meeting, talking to your, you know, to, to who, who sells you your food, it's largely mm -hmm. lost. And that really has been one of the drivers for me to start our butcher shop at Marrow, right? I, I really wanted um, people to say, okay, I'm just going to go talk to the Marrow butchers and see what's fresh, get their recommendations, and maybe get a recipe from them. So, mm -hmm. you know, we, so we do that. Um, I always today. ask recipes. I always do that. <laughs> yeah. Or like your preferred way of cooking it, right? Like what's yeah, it? Yeah. Like, what should I do with this? What do I do with this? And <laughs> it's my favorite thing when I go to the butcher. I don't yeah. know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm also, I'm curious, you're absolutely right. There is a huge difference. And I feel like culturally, this country and many other industrialized countries have moved away from that, that kind of relationship. The supermarket destroyed the intimate relationship with the source of food, but also to just like the quality. I feel like even in major markets, you know, like even in New York, people would be hard pressed. If I told someone to go out right now and find like a high quality cut of meat, they wouldn't know where to go. Even in Manhattan, they would be like, ah, uh, they would have to think about it. Like for, and it's changing, you know, but when we first opened up, I mean, when I first moved to the city, I should say there was not a ton of things like that, but it's interesting to see. I think the, the process of, of reacquainting people with this kind of interaction kind of involves being like, you can come here and eat, hang out. You can take this to go. I feel like kind of like bundling it helped there. I mean, there's a lot of strengths kind of what I'm getting back to here is that like the strength of the hybrid model is one that's still kind of like exposing what it's capable of. I mean, especially with COVID, I don't know about you, um, but during COVID, we were able to pivot really easily into just providing people stuff they could take home and work yep. with. Um, and it showed like a bit of versatility, like when, when we had to shut down on-premise stuff, that was, that was a huge savior for us. But I was also wondering, because as someone who's operated one of these businesses for a decade, do you feel like, what have you learned as the drawbacks or what are the difficult parts about running hybrid operations? Because I found that like, I remember I would go to try to commiserate with some of my colleagues and they'd be like, oh yeah, inventory on your scale is, is really different. It's really hard to, to maintain a retail side and like keep those numbers in mind while also focusing on like a bar program and kind of marrying the two at a marketing level. Is there anything that you've learned over the last few years that has 
been like a real sticking point or something that's really, really difficult? Yeah. Well, so on the, on the wine side, for sure that the, I mean, our cost of goods are much higher, right? Just running a retail shop as well. So, um, you know, average cost of goods for a bar program can be easily under, you know, 30%, right? And maybe even right. in, the, in the 20s and with great markups. But at a retail shop, because we have to stock the shelves. And as I mentioned, the Royce has quite a few shelves, you know, lots of shelf space, right? So yeah. we do typically have to spend more money and then inventory sits there for a while longer. So the retail right. model has poorer margins in general. Um, but it also means, but you know, at least with wine and beverages, it doesn't go bad, right? Exactly. Nothing really yeah. expires <laughs> you know, too soon. Yeah, actually, so, gets, arguably gets a little better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. And we can always move, we know we can always move things. Um, and with the retail model at the Royce, uh, we also have a, a subscription service. So we have a monthly wine club that really helps drive engagement. So our wine club members get 5% off every time they come in as members. On pickup day, they get 10% off, right? So 10% off, including like if they sit down and order a charcuterie board and glasses of wine at the bar. Hmm. So it really drives loyalty and drives engagement. And, you know, Claudia, going to back to your comparison of the music business, I learned about the subscription model in the music business, right? Because mm -hmm. it was the early days of Spotify, early days of, you know, subscription business models. And those are the most valuable because that's how you get someone to really come back, patronize, um, subscribe, consume right. whatever you're offering to them. And it's a brilliant model if you can really pull it off, right? And sustain it and grow it. Um, so both at Royce and Merrill, we have um, a subscription, we have subscription uh, offerings. Um, at Merrill, we have two uh, meat club tiers called provisions packs. So a smaller, we name it after the Great Lakes. So there's a Huron provisions packs. That's the superior provisions packs. It's a bigger box of meat. People come up and pick it up once a month and um, they get recipes, they get to, you know, be engaged, they get first dips on classes that we hold. Um, so yeah, it's, it's value added engagement um, mm -hmm. for our customers. And I think that is something that the retail business model offers, right? Traditional, if you're just a standalone restaurant, standalone bar, it's not something that, um, that you can offer as easily. Yeah, it's a good strength. I mean, it's a lot to work with. And God knows it's like these days, it pays to be kind of an outlier with what you can offer people. Everyone's looking for something novel. But also, yeah. too, the yeah. return thing. Like you said, if it gets some, someone to show up, that 10% off doesn't seem like a lot to offer someone. But if it means they're going to show up, pick up their bottles, and then order something in-house and a couple of glasses, you know, that's not that's not inconsiderable. That's that's kind of great. Yeah. And get well, even the subscription wine model. Yeah, even the subscription, like someone picks up the box, like they they get their, that's just where they get their meat from every month. And then they get the recipe, they get this experience too. How is this, has the yeah. subscription model done, done pretty well? Yeah, so we're not, I mean, we, because we only offer um, in-store pickups for both spots, right? So yeah. we're not like scaled to a point where, you know, it, it's um, hundreds upon thousands of subscribers, but we have a sure. pretty sizable subscription list. And it's, again, these are our best uh, customers, they're loyal, 
they uh, subscribe for, you know, on average six to eight months or more. Um, oh, that's a and lot. They, they, spend, they spend a lot of money, right, with us over yeah. their lifetime. And some of them, in fact, have been, I have subscribers at the Royce um, who have been with us for like five years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, as wine club members. Since before subscriptions were cool, like that's that's yeah. a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you were in before it was even a thing. <laughs> yeah. um, well, I guess on that note, I'd love to talk more. I'd love to just kind of pivot and talk about the expansion of the Marrow brand this year, because I know that you've got a new production facility that's going to enable you to sell to grocery stores and also expand some of these D2C sales. So talk to us a little bit about that project, because I feel like this ties in really well with some of the other stuff that you've already that you've already rolled out. Yeah. So um, it, the new business is called Marrow Detroit Provisions. So as the mm-hmm. name suggests, it's well, you know, focus more on just the meat side of things, right? The provisions yeah. side. Um, so I am, I have a, we bought a building in Eastern Market. So Eastern Market in Detroit, I don't know if any of you have been to Detroit, but given its legacy and, and long history, um, Detroit also has one of the oldest um, food halls or food markets in the country. So Eastern Market has been around for over a hundred years. It is um, typically so that that you know there are five sheds, um, and especially during the warmer months, a lot of vendors are like selling produce, selling you know meats, all sorts of food, uh, flowers as well, um, and it. Ha- it's it's an all year round thing. In the winter, it's just, it just scales back down to like two sheds. Um, but typically, over forty thousand people can come through Eastern Market on any you know given spring, summer, fall day, which is significant for Detroit. So we, um, I, I've always wanted to be in the Eastern Market for its um, legacy of food, its history of you know uh, f- food hub, right? So imagine mm-hmm. the meatpacking district and in, in New York, but like times three in size and it's still functioning. So there's still traditional meat oh. packers there. Um, and, you know, our goal and vision is to become the next generation of food, pro- you know, a meat, a meat processor. So mm-hmm. um, haven't broken ground yet, but hopefully we're going to break ground in two months. It's just been delayed with, you know, construction plans and changing and all that budgets changing. Um, once we break ground, I expect to be open in about a year. And um, the plan is to have a meat processing USDA inspected facility on the, on the ground floor, uh, along with on the street facing side, a bar and um, hangout space and a butcher shop. Um, and then on the second floor, we're going to open a new restaurant and event space. So that would encompass the entire two floors of the building. Um, but yeah, wow. the, so Mayor Detroit provisions will occupy most of the most of the ground floor. Um, the facility will be, uh, you know, licensed to produce, um, you know, raw cuts and sausages, specialty sausages. Um, we plan to also get into smoked products, and yeah, be able to sell to specialty grocery stores and you know distribute more widely to our customers. So this that's amazing. That's the, yeah. the perfect scale up. That's that's a huge undertaking, honestly. And I'm impressed. That's all happening very soon for you. It sounds like so. I'm wishing you the best of luck. But I'm also curious. What were some of the steps? Like, what made you realize? As Mero, Mero must have like tipped you off to the idea that people are really into this concept and that there's room for it to grow. Like, what was it? Was there anything that you noticed that made you realize this was a good idea or made you want to pursue this growth? 
So there was the idea to already expand the meat side, but COVID certainly, I, I think, helped us, uh, help me, you know, see that, that there is an opportunity for um, a more progressive meat business. I think we all know what happened with the big commercial meat companies when COVID happened, right? Like yeah. outbreaks in plants, in facilities, and, you know, um, uh, a lot of, you know, ongoing stories still about the poor treatment of staff and, you know, animals in these commercial meat plants. So for us at Marrow, even, you know, from the very beginning, we were always about working with local, local farms, supporting your local food industry. Um, and so the challenge for us at Marrow Detroit Provisions is to <clears throat> scale up that short supply chain focus on local meat and helping to build a more a better meat industry and that, that's also sustainable. So it's, you know, we, we're learning a lot. We're in the process of um, expanding our, uh, you know, partner farm network, our supply chain. And, you know, supply chain includes not just the farms, but also the slaughter, also the mm -hmm. logistics to get the, the, the proteins, you know, to the processor, which would be us. Um, and whomever we work with on, you know, on the co-packing side and then distribution. So we're, you know, we're in the process of setting up our supply chain this year um, where we will have some products in the market in, um, even before our facility opens because we're, you know, we're going to be working with some co-packers um, and getting our brand and recipes out there. So, you know, we manage the brand, we manage the sourcing and we manage the recipe. Um, but in the meantime, before our facility is built, we can actually get our products out in the market by working with, uh, with, with a co-packer. So that's what wow. we're working on this year. And, and yeah, it's, it's a, I think the, you know, if we want to, if we want to, in general, when we want to eat meat, um, definitely eat good meat, right? So I see us more aligned with the plant-based movement than we are with the, the big agricultural commercial right. meat industry. Because yeah. of the way we want to honor, you know, where the, the, the meat comes from, um, mm -hmm. you know, traceability, transparency. I mean, these are all important things to us. Um, yeah. And ultimately, quality and taste, right? It should translate yeah. into Absolutely, yeah. into taste difference. I mean, I could taste the difference in my Vital Farms eggs, which have gone up to $10 a, a box or whatever. But man, those things are freaking awesome. <laughs> Just for now, that's about to come back down. Don't worry. No, it's true. Providence and meat is, I think I tell everyone this, as soon as you find that good butcher, you'll never go back. I can't buy the mass processed meat products anymore. And you can tell when you're eating something that comes from one of those sources, it totally. just doesn't have that same, you, it's a, it's a major difference. And also too, like you said, it's bigger than just the, the experience, the quality, of course, that's, that's important, but it's also, you know, accountability and transparency that you can actually follow and upkeep practices so that the industry, you know, can be, can be improved and can be better for, you know, for the environment, for all kinds of considerations. I think that's really, that's thinking big picture in a way that not a lot of businesses do. So very cool. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess on that note too, I'm just really curious what, like it's, it's, it sounds like you've taken on a lot and you've probably learned a lot over the years, but we always like to ask people if you were going to tell a different restaurant operator that they have a product and they were kind of curious like like you're doing to 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 bring it to the larger masses and and expand more like a, a CPG or DTC kind of experience did you have any advice for someone who was looking to jump into something like that or any kind of warnings or or 
kind of tipping off things that they should that you consider before they do it? Well, it's <laughs> I think the advice I have is also you know my own real time learnings. Um, yeah. In in starting in any business, yeah, the the financing piece of it is key, right? And um, oh, yeah. But it gets easier. So when you know, when I, I my goal is obviously to build Marrow as a brand. Um, and there's so many pieces to that, right? So it starts really with the product quality and, and yeah, once you have that down, then thinking through getting into a, a broader distribution production CPG, I think it's identifying very quickly where your value proposition lies, right? So if your, if your value proposition lies in, um, you know, quality taste, things that you're delivering on a very unique basis, definitely hone in early on that and then build out. And that becomes, you know, th I think that then drives a lot of your sourcing to your marketing message and all that, right? So it's taken, you know, quite a few months or more for us to, you know, to drill down into these things and we are c continuing to do so. So yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's a large endeavor and, um, but knowing who you are and your value proposition is a very important start. Um, yeah, yeah, and and yeah, marketing. <laughs> I'm right now, you know, trying to figure out how to um, get about doing it because I think in the restaurant space, in small bar shop, retail shops, I mean, we rely on a lot of organic and like bootstrapped marketing. Like, you know, my chef still does the Instagram posts, right? Um, up till quite right. recently, I was still doing the Instagram posts at the Roy's. So it's it's a uh, it's an important part of trying to grow any kind of a brand, right? Especially in the CPG space, which is so competitive. Um, so marketing Definitely. for sure and getting, you know, the strategies in place and understanding digital marketing um, is, and, yeah, and what, that's... yeah, and how to go about doing it. And a lot of it is algorithm based, you know, search engine yeah, optimization right. is very technical. And it's not something that you, you know, most of us in, in this space focus on for, in yeah. our day to day. Right. That's an ever evolving beast. It's a tough one. Yeah. But I do feel yeah. like we're seeing more of this. We're seeing a lot of these, I mean, especially in Chicago, maybe that's because, I don't know, that's here, here market works right out of our space and in, in, um, at Relish Works where I sit. And I find that they, they, that's what they do. They help restaurateurs bring CPG products, bring some of their favorite products into CPG to market. And I, but I find that there's a lot of interest around this right now. And I, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on other episodes in the show as well of other folks that they really started thinking about this more, I think during the pandemic with like all the meal kits that they were selling and all of the to-go boxes and adding to that experience. And like, how do we bottle and package this? And then, oh, actually, like we can do something even bigger with that. If we can package this for a to-go box, then how can we actually, you know, move it into grocery or move it in, like you said, to, in the digital marketing space or sell it online in an online store. So I think we're going to see, it seems like we're seeing more of it. And so um, I love, I like that you're doing it and you're tackling it. Sorry, I have no question for that, but just no, my this thoughts. Is a <laughs> Sorry, just, just, my, just my own commentary, me interviewing She's myself like, now. Very... <laughs> well, I'm curious. I mean, if we're, we're gonna, we can start wrapping things up here, but I'm just really curious yeah. because you're clearly thinking ahead. Do you have anything that you're most excited for uh, about the future of the industry, uh, service otherwise, or, or specifically where you inhabit, but also just restaurants and, and hospitality in general? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I'm, 
sometimes I kick myself, right? I'm like, why am I leaning into the meat space when a lot of, you know, seemingly more progressive companies are leaning away from it? You know, when there are like talks about the environment, all that. I see it as a good challenge because I think the meat industry is not going to go away for the foreseeable future in our generation at, at the very least, right? And so right. to me, it's a big challenge, but an exciting challenge to be able to to really tackle the, the issues with the meat business and provide a better alternative. So a next generation, be it like women run, Singaporean Chinese lady run, you know, showing up to these some of these meetings. I'm I'm like the antithesis of someone who owns a meat business, right? So to <laughs> me, that's a big challenge and something mm-hmm. that I'm excited to tackle, but there'll be a lot of learnings along the way. Um, in terms of the restaurant space, I think we're getting out of COVID. We're seeing definitely also a recovery, but business models and thinking, you know, a lot of thinking around, um, you know, wages around work-life balance, I think have changed in positive ways. So I, you know, I think my team is a young, dynamic, smart team. And I, you know, we're, we're going to be con- continue to focus on all the, taking these learnings and then growing them and, and developing them, right? So I see the industry, I'm, I'm pretty positive and optimistic for the restaurant business in general. You know, there were a lot of calls for like the death of, the business, you know, and traditional models, but in positive ways, right? I think we're looking at an industry that where accolades and awards may maybe don't matter as much as sustainability and survivability, right? And positive right. models where um, the four-day work week is actually better <laughs> in the long run than having a restaurant that's open seven days or six days a week, right? Yeah. So yeah. So I think that there are new models that are now, I think, more progressive and ultimately sustainable. And that's that's what I'm focused on as well. Yeah, very cool. It is. It seems like a good progress pro- progression being made in the industry. So mm-hmm. good outlook. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ping. Before you go, we have something that we do on this on this show called the tasting menu, where I ask you three questions and first thing that comes to mind. So First question, favorite musician to listen to during a meal? Uh, Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, that's a good great one. Answer. That is a great answer. great answer. Man, I can like almost, I can almost see, I can, I can experience it as you're saying it too. The Ella Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. the voice, the passion. Mm-hmm. Passion there, passion in the food. I love it. Favorite cut of meat? Ah, Copa. 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 I don't think I've, I don't think I even know. I actually don't know what that is. I was waiting to see if someone else would say something before me. (laughs) It's like, what is it? Okay. Let me make sure I have the, um, it's it's part of the the neck and it's really, um, really, really tender. Um, and you can do charcuterie from it as well, but yeah, it's, it's pork and it's part of the, yeah, part of the neck. I've heard of this. Yes. I know now. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I see it now. I'm I'm Googling it. You're right. I have seen this before. Oh, very cool. Okay. I think think you know, charcuterie from Copa as well, but it's just so like melts in your mouth. There's such a nice 
fat to meat mm. ratio. It kind of reminds me of prosciutto. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's a bit more marble because yeah, it's it's part of the neck. Marbly. Yeah. yeah. And and if you just even cook it on, you know, on grill it lightly, it's it just is delicious. Yeah. Oh, very that cool. That to meat ratio, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It looks like prosci- it says prosciutto on here is copa's made from uh, prosciutto's made from the hind leg of the hog. Copa's made yeah, Pop from shoulder. the neck. The neck. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. there we go. Huh, very cool. See, we learn something new on the show all the time, not just in the interviews, but in the tasting <laughs> menu section. Okay, last question here. What's your favorite city to eat in? Ooh. Tough one. I I I I mean Spain, Madrid and Barcelona both like yeah, I've, I've had some amazing amazing meals, but I would say Tokyo. Oh, yeah. Tokyo changed oh, my life. Yeah. I went to Tokyo and had <laughs> you know, some like from sushi to every different types of cuisine, because they, they're very specialized. If you go to ramen, they only have ramen, right? If you have the sushi, it's only sushi. Yeah, could not, I could not eat anything else related to Japanese food for one year after I spent time in Tokyo eating. So <laughs> It's on my list of cities that I'm really wanting to visit. I've never been to Tokyo, but that's all I ever see. Whenever I see these, I, this probably makes me sound really basic, but whenever I see these influencers going, uh, to Tokyo and they do these foodie tours. I'm always mm. like, oh my God, it looks so, it's so unique, interesting, the flavors, the textures, just everything. It just seems like a totally, it's a totally different world. I, I would love to experience it one day. So one Absolutely. day. You, you have to go. Yeah. And obviously yeah. I'll give a shout out to, you know, Southeast Asia, my, and Singapore, but, but I would say. Oh yeah. Every like, Singapore is fantastic for, yeah. even for like a quick trip, they're like, you can eat yes. the best food and yeah. Totally. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Ping. I, I loved hearing your story. And it's so interesting to talk to someone that's got the reach that's doing the hybrid experience as well. So but and except for just talking to Zach about it. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Zach, I'll have to come by and see you when next time in, in New York. Absolutely. The invitation is always open. Let me know if you're coming back to visit your old stomping grounds. We'll have a we'll have a drink wait a beer waiting for you and we'll eat some some copa if I can find some. <laughs> What's the name Excellent. of Excellent? Beer, beer bar and shop. Yeah, Alphabet City Beer Co. or ABC Beer Co. for short. We're over in the East Village, so yeah. Great. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Want to hear more? Then you need to head to backuphouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, and interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for our free newsletter, Back of House News. Our team of reporters cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you really need to see each and every week. This is honestly one of the best weekly newsletters I've ever read, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms. Yeah.